And welcome, Strange Seeds. You're listening to the Primordia Podcast, your source for strange. Open your mind, take off that flesh suit, and dive into primordial waters as we swim through the mystical and magical, weird phenomenon, unsettling synchronicities, and the truly terrifying. I'm your host, Britt. So, just some housekeeping to go over before we dive into the episode. I am collecting or attempting to collect spooky shit stories like that for a special Samhain episode of the podcast, so please submit your stories if you have any. You can submit them via email at primordia.bwc at gmail.com on Facebook, or on Instagram through the messenger. And you will be credited with your story submission, whether it's fact or fiction, or if you choose to remain anonymous, anonymous, that's that's fine too, but I, I would prefer to credit you because, come on, man. I know I normally sign off with the message, but I would absolutely love to hear your feedback or ideas for future episodes. I've got what I think is interesting in the works, and hopefully it'll be interesting to you all as well. That's the idea. There are a few Halloween-themed designs available in our Threadless and Redbubble shops, including some controversial candy corn. It's only controversial because some of you people don't like it for whatever reason. More designs will be uploaded soon. Without rambling much more, let's dive into this week's episode, inspired by my love for camping and hiking and creepy shit, of course. Though very few and far between, I have had some interesting camping and hiking experiences over the years. If you're a fan of the outdoors and venture onto or off of trails like I do, perhaps you've also had your share of bizarre encounters or instances. Just last year, in fact, I was hiking with my dog Leia in Marshall Swamp, Marshall Swamp, Marshall Swamp here in Florida, and um, I had homemade gifts for the local skunk, ape, and fae community in one hand, don't judge me, and Leia's leash in the other. Now, other than the mosquitoes, the hike was wonderful, though short-lived. I was trying to find a place not too far from the trail where I could leave my offerings, which consisted of a piece of sweet bread that I had made and a, like, wind chime dream catcher type thing that I made from sticks and hemp twine. While I was spot scouting, Leia and I passed a guy on the trail. One of, like, few that, very few that day, people that we happen to pass. Just to be friendly, as I usually try to be with other thru-hikers and locals, you know, just, just how I am, I smiled at him and nodded. Hey, I said. Hey, how are you? He asked, to which I replied, good, fucking mosquitoes, man. He laughed and then said no kidding before moving along. Something in my being, however, made me turn around a few seconds later to see where he was behind me on the trail. I don't know what it was, just everything in me was telling me turn around, turn around, turn around. Just as I turned to look back, I noticed he had stopped on the trail some 40 feet or so back and was just staring at me, meaning he had to stop and turn around from the direction that he was originally walking in to stare in my direction. 
without breaking eye contact, he then literally stepped backwards slowly into the woodline off of the trail. He was looking at me the entire fucking time. Something about his gaze said he was waiting on me to like turn back around and head in his direction or waiting on me to turn away so he could give chase. I don't know. Everything in me told me to run. Now, mind you, I've had unfortunate public encounters where my life was put in jeopardy before, like many, so <laughs> I don't play around when I get these signals, and so I pretty much did. I pretty much, like, tried to just run. I grabbed up Leia's leash tightly in my hand and quickly quickened my pace as much as I could. Now, I'm already a fast walker, but I was pretty much walk running at that point. I feel bad because I chose to quickly place the offering I had with me on a log by the side of the trail so I could pick up a large stick to use defensively if necessary. Typically, I try to carry a knife with me while I'm hiking just to be safe, you know. You can never be too careful. Now, I had Leia run with me the rest of the way to the car, um, even picking her up at some points because she was, she was just so exhausted and I've feel like a terrible parent to her for making her run on that trail. When we finally made it, I threw the stick aside and scrambled to unlock the car as quickly as I could and get myself and Leia locked inside. I was like pretty much having a panic attack at that point. Now, maybe I was overreacting, but like I said, with my previous experiences and the vibes I was getting from that eerie eye contact, I wasn't going to take any chances. My creepy trail experiences aside, I know some people have been faced with real dangers along their way while hiking or camping. Today, that's exactly what we're going to be discussing. This will be the first installment in a series dubbed Truly Terrifying about, you guessed it, scary shit that has actually happened or has been proven to have occurred, or have enough witnesses to say that it occurred. Without further ado, let's dive into True Terrors on the Trails, or as I like to call it, Trail Mix, because I just can't help myself. Now, I do want to interject here with a content warning. This episode, in fact, the very first case we're going to discuss, dives into real cases of death and murder, and this unfortunately includes child murder. If that's not for you, as in you can't handle hearing about it, which I definitely understand, I would recommend sitting this one out or skipping this episode. All right. In the summer months of 1977, Camp Scott was due to have an influx of Girl Scouts for the week, as it did every year. This summer would be incredibly different, however, and it would be the camp's last in operation. Camp Scott is situated in Locust Grove, a small town in northeastern Oklahoma. The camp had been running in service to the Girl Scouts, since approximately the 1920s and encompassed over 400 acres of property running along Snake Creek in Mays County, sometimes accommodating up to 800 campers. Let's travel back in time. It's June 12, 1977, the first day for campers at Camp Scott that year. Well, night. There's a rainstorm during dinner and all of the campers huddled in their respective tents to escape the storm. Three of such girls were Lori Farmer, age 8, Michelle Gus, age 9, if I'm mispronouncing these names, please correct me, and Doris Denise Milner, age 10. These three girls were camped in Kiawa Tent 7, 
Tent 8 if you're including the counselor's tent, which was the farthest from the counselors in the semicircle of tents that made up the Kiowa camp area, about 86 yards away and obscured from the view of the counselor's tent by the showers. During the middle of the night, some of the girls from some of the tents were noisy, causing the camp counselors to quiet them down verbally from their tents several times. At one point, around 1 or 1.30, according to their statements, one of them even had to escort a group of girls back to their tent after they were woken by the sound of the latrine door or lid being slammed. Early the following morning, camp counselor Carla Wilhite made her way to these showers. She didn't make it very far, though, before she noticed a sleeping bag on the ground at a fork in the trail. Upon approaching the sleeping bag, she discovered the body of Doris Denise Milner. According to Carla Wilhite's description, she assumed the girl was dead because, quote, her eyes were open and legs were spread out. Here's an excerpt from the pre-trial in which Carla was questioned about the murders, the discovery of the body, and strange events leading up to that horrendous day. Questioner. Now, would you show us where you thought you saw those sleeping bags? Answer. Right here in the fork, indicating. Question. Tell us, what was your first reaction? What was your first impression? What did you see? Answer. I just saw sleeping bags, and I thought that sometime, maybe during the night, during my time off, Ben had delivered some more luggage. We had some missing, and I thought some of it had fallen off the truck, so I was going to go over and pick up the sleeping bags and put them in our unit kitchen for somebody to claim, and when I started walking over there, I saw a body end. Question. You can take your seat again. When you made this discovery, you mentioned you saw a body. What did you do? Answer. Well, I started walking over toward it, and as I got closer, I saw it was a little girl, and I couldn't say whether or not, you know, she belonged to my unit, so I didn't know, you know, who she was at that point, and I just assumed she was dead because her eyes were open and her legs were spread out, and, you know, I didn't know what happened. I thought, you know, an accident or something. So I ran back to the counselor's tent, and I woke up Dee and Susan, and I told her that we needed to count our kids because I'd found a body in the road, so I told her to start with tent 7, and I would start with tent 1, and we would work our way through the unit. Now, as they begin their search through the tents, Camp Counselor D. Elder discovers that there are no campers in tent 7, but she had noticed some blood. You can read her testimonial as well from the pretrial. C.S. Kelly has taken it upon herself to make these copies of the transcripts from the court proceedings available, as well as a plethora of other in-depth research on the case, on the website campscottmurders.com, so check it out. I will also link it in the episode description, just in case you forget. Back to the discovery. Carla says, so I got to about tent three, and Dee comes running over, and she says, well, there's nobody in tent seven, and she said there's blood, and so I said, well, we've got to go ahead and count, because they might be sleeping with somebody else, you know, and got scared during the night, and maybe they went in somebody else's tent. So I counted down to tent six, and then I went over to tent seven, and I parted the front flaps and looked in, and I saw blood on the corner of one of the mattresses and some stuff all over the floor, but there weren't any sleeping bags in it or kids. Question. What was your reaction? What, if you can remember, what did you think? Answer. Well, I thought that maybe one of the kids had started her period. At this point, Carla only knows of the death of one girl. The attorney continues. You've taken us to the point that you discovered tent seven is empty and you made a count. 
Did you come up with how many on your count? Did you come up short on your count? Answer, yes. Question, then what did you do, please? Answer, well, I still thought that there was just one body there at the fork in the road, and so I just said, I told Dee and Susan to stay in the camp area and make sure that none of the kids got up or heard anything, to not let them, you know, get out of their tents, and that I would go get camp nurse and Barbara Day and the camp director. Or, I'm sorry, I would go get the camp nurse and Barbara Day, the camp director. So I ran up the road that goes up toward the staff house and over across to the nurse's office, the infirmary where the camp office is, too, and I got to the nurse, Marianne Alabac, and told her that there was a body down in Kiawa in the fork and that I needed her to get down there real fast, so she grabbed her car keys and her stuff and left, and by that time, I got over to Barbara Day's office, and I woke her and her husband, Richard, up, and we went down in the camp wagon, station wagon, by the time we got down there, Marianne came up and said there's three. She meant there were three bodies, and so Richard and I and Barbara got out of the car and we went back over to the bodies, and I could tell then, you know, that it was the little Milner girl and... Question, it had gotten lighter, incidentally? Answer, sure. Three bodies had been discovered far away from Tent 7, where they had recited the night before all sexually assaulted, strangled, and bludgeoned. The body of Doris Denise Milner, as described by Carla Wilhite, was found on a fork in the trail road that connected the tents, while the bodies of Lori Lee Farmer and Michelle Goose were found piled atop one another. Though the bodies were right off the trail, they were not directly visible from the trail road. Do remember again that these babies were only 8, 9, and 10 years old. Let's back up to the night of the murders around 1 or 1.30 in the morning when Carla and Dee were suddenly awoken by the sounds of slamming of what they thought to be the latrine lid. Carla, being closer to the door of the tent according to Dee, went to investigate and found a group of girls walking the path from the latrines. She questioned them about the noise and sent them off to bed. Around the same time, she heard some strange sounds coming from the fence area nearby. She describes the noise in her testimony. Questioner. I believe you said, did you say it sounded like a frog? Answer. Kind of like in between a foghorn, a frog, or a snore. Question. Do you know where John Cavalier's place is? Answer. Yes. Do you know if John Cavalier has cattle out there? He does. Could you tell me if the noise was made by either man or beast? I can't say. It didn't sound like either. You went out there and looked, though? Yes. Did you take your light? Yes. Shine it out there? Yes. Did you see anything that looked like a man or a beast? No. Do you know if that noise came from a brushy area? Yes. Was it a brushy area that it came from? Yeah. In your estimate, which side of the fence, in your opinion, John Cavalier's side or the Camp Scott side? Cavalier's side. Did anybody go with you to investigate the noise? No. After you heard that noise and you told those girls to quiet down, what did you do? Well, I just walked over to tents 6 and 7. They were all quiet down there. 6 and 7 were quiet, so I walked back and I finally got to bed. Did you see anything unusual? No. Have your light? Yeah. Did you use your light? Yes. And when you went to bed, you went to sleep, right? Yes. 
As bizarre and unexpected as these murders were, there had been other strange occurrences in the weeks leading up to the homicide of the three girls. Carla Wilhite, in fact, experiences experienced strange noises and what could have been, and this is just my speculation, or speculation on my part, an initial prowl by the assailant or the assailants. She is questioned about this incident and describes it. Here's one more excerpt. Question. What happened the night you were in the staff house? Answer. I heard a noise. I heard noise behind the staff house on the screen. What did it sound like, Carla? It was just like a scratch, you know, like somebody rubbed up against it and I figured there was somebody behind there like a camper or something and they were going to, you know, last night's surprise. And so, question, could you tell us if that noise was man or beast? Answer, it sounded like a person and so I said, who's there? And nobody answered, but I heard steps walking away and so I put on my glasses, you know, and I just laid there and listened and I heard, you know, some more steps. So I got up and I looked out, you know looked out from the front window because I thought it might have been Sally, our camp dog. And she, well, here she comes. Here Sally comes across from, over from the Woodard's house. Question, who does Sally belong to? Answer, the camp. Question, what did Sally do when she came running across the yard? Answer, she started barking and growling. Did you ever see what she was barking or growling at? No. Did you hear anything else? Not after that. I just grabbed my blanket while she was starting to chase whatever it was, and I ran across and got D. Elder because I knew she was in the Kawpaw unit, and I got her and a few other people up, and they came in and sat with me until I fell asleep, and then Jody Davis came in the house with the rest of the night. Did you tell anybody else about the incident where you heard the noise outside of the staff house? I don't remember, just D. and whoever else was there at the time. Did anything unusual, anything unusual other than that, happen during the orientation week? Carla replies, no. As if the noise, noises, and strange footsteps weren't foreboding enough, in the months preceding the girls' murders, another camp counselor by the name of Michelle Hoffman found that her tent had been ransacked and some donuts stolen. Left inside the empty donut box was a threatening note that read, in all capital letters, We are on a mission to kill three girls in tent one. There were apparently some other notes as they were like leaves from a steno pad, as she describes them, found as well, one of which just like said kill repeatedly. The notes were given to the camp coordinator who discarded it thinking it was a joke or a prank, apparently not knowing at the time that the counselor's tent had been ransacked. A month after the murders occurred, a bag containing a pair of wet pink socks along with a pair of tennis shoes with the name of Denise Milder inscribed in them, also wet, was found on the doorstep of what was being used as the command post for security at Camp Scott following the girls' murders. The guards had just returned from searching the area after seeing the silhouette of someone creeping about in the woodline. The Tulsa Tribune reported on the instance on July 29, 1977, available in the sources list for your viewing pleasure. According to the guards reporting to the Tulsa Tribune, they had already been out three times that week due to reports of creeping figures. Investigators had also tied threads between trees that were later found broken, along with numerous footprints on the trails that they had already marked off. Now, other sources say that other counselors had strange experiences as well, 
ranging from a strange light appearing in the woods that night to another counselor hearing strange guttural growling noises outside near the tents in Kiawa and a single scream being heard in the middle of the night along with what sounded like a girl calling out for her mother, which is just terribly depressing to think about. It's incredibly tough, again, to think about what these babies went through. There was even talk of another girl from another tent that claimed she woke up in the middle of the night to a man pulling back the flap of the tent she was in and shining a flashlight inside before the man just wandered off. I haven't made it all the way through the court documents, but I've yet to find anything documenting these mentioned instances. Regardless, they are eerie. Alright, I think we've had our fill of child murder for the day, so let's move along. We can take a deep breath here to recenter our energy. I think that's a good idea. So. <sighs> there we go. Hopefully that wasn't too unpleasant for your ears. Now we'll move on to some slightly less traumatizing good old-fashioned adult murder. Ooh. The Appalachian Trail is an American hiker's dream hike. Covering almost 2,200 miles, it is the longest hiking-only footpath in the world, according to the Appalachian Trail Conservancy. Stretching from Georgia to Maine, the trail is home to locals, thru-hikers, campers, and the like. A lot of these people adopt trail names in place of their family-given ones, and can prefer to hike solo or group up with other hikers in what they call a tramily, or trail family. Before I continue, I want to throw in a little side note, not exactly, kind of like a disclaimer here. I don't want to make it seem like there are tons of murders on the Appalachian Trail. In fact, murder on the trail is extremely rare given these instances and the statistics. So there have only been about 13 reported murders, now sources vary as to this number, throughout the trail's history. While the trail experiences a traffic, Traffic of around 3 million visitors annually, so not much of a chance of you being murdered on the trail, but knock on wood. We won't be diving into all of these murders, though we will take a closer look at just a few of them. The first on our list, the murder of 43-year-old Iraq war veteran Ronald Sanchez and the attempted murder of Kirby Morrill at the hands of James Jordan. Jordan was known by his trail name Sovereign and was known around the trail for causing problems. In fact, he had previously been ordered by police and trail officers to stay off of the trail after pleading guilty to causing trail disturbances by brandishing a machete at other hikers and threatening them while he was intoxicated. This was just a month before this murder and attempted murder took place, by the way. Apparently, the cops who checked out the incident said he made no criminal threats. Bullshit. In May of 2019, James Jordan made his way around the Appalachian Trail near Wythe County, Virginia, where he stumbled across a group of hikers whom he accosted, threatening to burn them alive in their tents. Two members of the campsite fled, and Jordan apparently gave chase. He later returned to the campsite, where Ronald Sanchez and 28-year-old Kirby Marill remained. After an altercation, Jordan ended up fatally stabbing Sanchez before lunging for Marill, who was stabbed and slashed repeatedly as well. Because it was dark, Marill believed he may have thought she was dead when she decided to hold her breath and pretend to be just that, dead. Moral reports. 
He had fallen on top of me and switched from stabbing me to beating me on the side of my head. So I held my breath and I held still, she said. Eventually he stopped and he got up and stood over me for what felt like forever. I tried not to breathe. Bleeding profusely from a stab wound to the leg, as well as numerous others, and with little to no movement in either of her arms, Marill somehow managed to hike alone for over three hours, covering a distance of six miles to reach safety. Though she survived the harrowing ordeal, Ronald Sanchez was not so lucky, succumbing to his injuries and passing away. To make matters worse for the Sanchez family, James Jordan was recently found unfit to stand trial and not guilty by reason of insanity or mental defect. The University of Virginia, who performed an evaluation of Jordan, determined that he suffered not only from a mood disorder, but also from schizoaffective disorder with acute psychotic symptoms. Because of this ruling, Jordan will remain in federal custody, supposedly receiving treatment for his illnesses, until society deems him to no longer be a threat to persons or property. When I was taking a look into this case, I couldn't help but feel the itch that perhaps there were precautions that could have been taken by trail officials like the ATC or even local police officers when it came to the physical threats of violence made by Jordan to other trail members previous to this incident. That's why it was almost like a slap in the face when I read about a similar incident in the trail's past. (laughs) The 1981 murders of Robert Mountford Jr. and Laura Susan Ramsey and the 2008 attempted murders of Sean Farmer and Scott Johnston, all four of these crimes committed by Randall Lee Smith. In 1981, Laura Susan Ramsey and Robert Mountford Jr., both 27-year-old social workers, were hiking on the Appalachian Trail to raise money for a school when they were brutally murdered. Mountford was shot with a 22 caliber pistol in the head while Laura was bludgeoned and then stabbed. Randall Lee Smith was convicted of the murders, but having received a plea deal, only served 15 years of his 30-year sentence before he was released. He was released from prison in 1996. Fast forward to 2008. Not too far from the site of the 1981 murders, in fact only about two miles away, Smith attempted murder yet again. This time, however, his victims would fortunately survive. Scott Johnston and Sean Farmer were fishing and camping on the trail and having a grand time when they met a passerby who seemed friendly enough. They shared small talk about fishing before the fellow left them, returning to them later that evening with his dog. Apparently, the two fishermen shared dinner with Smith before Smith called his dog and said he was leaving to head back to his camp. All of a sudden, according to Johnston, gunshots ring through the campsite and all hell breaks loose. Johnston and Farmer were shot at several times. Johnston being hit in the face and neck and back, and Farmer being shot directly in the chest after deciding to charge at Smith. Farmer was able to flee in his vehicle, and Johnston, who had plugged his neck wound with his finger to stop the pulsing blood, stumbled down through the woods and onto the road where he saw Farmer's vehicle approaching. Farmer stopped to pick up Johnston, and the two fled the scene in hopes that they weren't being pursued. You can read about their incredible fight for survival in the NBC article Escape from Brushy Mountain, linked below, or you can watch the I Survived episode about it. It's Season 2, Episode 17, if you're interested. I have yet to watch it, but it's on my list. Um, I've got to be in like a certain mood to watch I Survived. 
Smith, according to reports in his obituary, tried to flee the scene of the crime in the in a victim's truck. Now, I'm going to assume it was Johnston's since the victims were able to flee in Farmer's vehicle, but Smith crashed the truck. About four days later, Smith was found dead in police custody as a result of injuries he sustained in the crash. Fucking crazy. I feel like the Doors song, People Are Strange, is eerily appropriate for this episode. One more strange murder that occurred in the, on the Appalachian Trail is the unsolved murder of Scott Lilly. In August of 2011, some hikers discovered the partially buried body of 30-year-old Scott Lilly in the Cow Camp Gap Shelter on the Appalachian Trail in Amherst County, Virginia. Scott was known by his trail name Stonewall, as he was an avid fan of Civil War battlefields and the rich history behind them. Eventually, his death was ruled as a homicide by investigating detectives, and his cause of death was determined to be asphyxia by suffocation. Investigators speculate that the motive for the murder could have been robbery, as some items of Lily's were missing from the scene, including a backpack, new trail shoes, a Nintendo game, and a hiking handbook. Despite the Lilly family offering up a $10,000 reward for information leading to, well, new leads, the case remains unsolved. This next case we're going to dive into isn't about a trail murder, but rather a kind of lost and found story. No disrespect intended whatsoever. The story of Geraldine Largay is a sad one, and also a good warning for those who may want to think twice about how prepared they might be to take on a mammoth trekking adventure like the AT. One such daring woman was 66-year-old vivacious Geraldine Largay, known by her trail name Inchworm, which I think is just fucking adorable. She was hiking the trail by herself, meeting up with her husband George to resupply at planned intervals along the way. On July 21, 2013, Geraldine said goodbye to her husband and set off on another leg of the trail. According to her husband George and reports, she planned to cover 32 miles in roughly three days before meeting back up with her husband. He would never see her alive again. The next day, on July 22nd, Geraldine went off trail to use the restroom and got lost, unable to find her way back to the trail or find any markers or trail signs. She tried to send some text messages to George, but the messages never made it through. In some trouble, her message read. Got off trail to go to bathroom. Now lost. Can you call ATC to see if a trail maintainer can help me? Somewhere north of Woods Road. XOX. Despite us all being taught that your best course of action when lost is to stay put, Geraldine attempted to find her own way back for some time before she did finally bunker down. Trying to send more texts, she waited. When she failed to arrive at their next designated meetup spot, George contacted authorities, who then began what would be a 12-day search for Geraldine. During the search, no evidence of her would be found. It wasn't until October of 2015, two years after her disappearance, that her remains were discovered only about two miles or so from the trail. With her remains was a pouch that contained a journal. According to the dates and the journal entries, Geraldine had surprisingly survived for at least 26 days before she perished from starvation and exposure. During her time lost, she had apparently made fires, tried making a signal with her solar blanket, and had even tried sending more texts that never made it through. 
In her journal, she writes, Please find it in your heart to mail the contents of this bag to my husband or daughter. When you find my body, please call my husband George and my daughter Carrie. It will be the greatest kindness for them to know that I am dead and where you found me, no matter how many years from now. Her last journal entry was made on August 18th, and investigators deduced that she must have died shortly after. To finish off this episode, I thought it would only be fitting to share some spooky hiking-related stories from various peoples. I won't spend too much time sharing, though, because I know this is already a pretty long episode. (laughs) Our first story comes from a hiker-trekker named Jeff Longlegs Thistle. He said, Went down to Wilson's Creek Wilderness for a weekend trip. At some point at night, I awoke to the guy I was sharing the tent with crouched on the balls of his feet over me with his knife drawn. Immediately, I thought I was about to be sacrificed to some odd religious backpacking ceremony. I was shit terrified and looked up at him and I assumed he was about to stab my heart and said, Hey man, what's going on? He whispered, Listen. I was just like, Anything you say, bud, as long as you don't murder me. So I listened. Then after five five minutes that seemed like three hours, I heard this super eerie call. I shot up, found my knife, and was on higher alert. The eerie voice that we could only assume was a crazed redneck or ghost kept getting closer. It got super close and we debated running into the woods, but decided silence was best inside our $30 bright blue target tent. Slowly, after it seemed to linger just across from us, the voice moved away and kept hollering. The next morning, we woke up and had a hard time comprehending what we heard. Was that even real? We packed up and started hiking. After a few miles, we came across an orange ribbon and message across the trail. The message was to a lost day hiker who never returned the day before. They suspected he was hungry and cold and wandering in the area all night. So we ignored a lost hiker who sounded like a ghost. If he had come upon us, we may have stabbed him. I don't know. But he never asked for help. He just moaned like a ghost. Dude was creepy and never said, help me, I'm a lost hiker. He was found and rescued that day, but we could have saved him the night before. Eerie, but at least the guy calling out had been helped and wasn't a threat. I feel bad that he wandered around all night, though, in search of assistance to no avail. Here's another story brought to us by Kodarar63. One night, my friend and I decided to hike to the top of the small mountain at night for a meteor shower. There were four of us, all around 16 at the time, and thought it would be cool. We drove over and started hiking. We took a break about halfway when we noticed there was a guy following us. In a business suit? We were weirded out, so we decided to start back up and walk a bit faster. But by the time we stopped, he was like 10 feet away, so we bit the bullet to see if he'd just walk by. He didn't. He stopped and asked us if we were there for the meteor shower and if he could walk with us. Weird, a 30-something-year-old man in a suit wanting to hike with four 16-year-olds, but whatever. As we were walking, my friend and I noticed he was walking really close to our friend, the only girl in the group, like he could smell her shampoo close. Fucking creepy. We got to the top, sat down, and he sat down almost right on top of our friend. With her reasonably reasonably freaked out, I made an excuse on why we had to leave early and we promptly booked it the fuck out of there, nearly running the entire way down. When we got back to the car, we thought, cool, we ditched the weirdo, but no. 
When we were all in the car, my friend pointed out that this guy is full on sprinting down the trail and towards our car with a large stick. Being in a car, we just drove off out of there very shook up. We chalked it up to the dude on Subdrug, but two days later, we all got a text linking us to a news report about a guy that had strangled his wife and then proceeded to kill another girl later that night on a hiking trail. It was the guy. The same dude at the same hiking trail. We never told our parents about the incident, and we never went back there. Ever. If you want more of strange murders and disappearances on trails or in national parks, I highly recommend checking out David Polides and his research into what he calls the Missing 411, peoples that have disappeared from national parks all over without a trace and under bizarre circumstances. He has written a series of books on the matter and even has two documentary films out regarding such phenomena, respectively titled Missing 411 and Fissing Missing 411, The Hunted. Amy Ardry of Unearthing Paranormalcy, because I can't plug them enough, does very interesting in-depth research into many of these cases, so check out their podcast as well for more true trail crime. Reading Recommendations Someone Cry for the Children by Dick Wilkerson and Michael Wilkerson The Camp Scott Murders, The 1977 Girl Scout Murders by C.S. Kelly. Tent Number 8, by Gloyd McCoy. Murder on the Appalachian Trail, by Jess Carr. Missing 411, Eastern United States, Unexplained Disappearances of North America that Have Never Been Solved, and Missing 411, Western United States, Unexplained Disappearances of North Americans that Have Never Been Solved, both by David Polides. And that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Primordia Podcast, Your Source for Strange. Remember, we have an Etsy, a Threadless, and a Redbubble shop all up right now. There are some sales going on. The sale is live in the Etsy. So go ahead and grab your witchy kits before they are gone so that we can restock for the spooky season. Again, If you or anyone you know has a spooky story to share, whether it's true, a case of deja vu, spooky shit, or unsettling synchronicities, we would love to hear from you, and we will feature it on an upcoming episode if you reach out. You can email us at primordia.bwc at gmail.com or message us over on Facebook or Instagram, link in the podcast description. As always, Thank you so much for listening. Stay strange.